Our next Bible reading comes from Daniel chapter 11, verses 25 through to 37. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will evade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up and desecrate the temple, fortress, and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will also do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Amen. Well, today we're looking at uh, two whole chapters of Daniel, which is uh, quite a lot of ground to cover. And as you can tell by the readings we've chosen, or I've chosen to really sort of chew or pick out of all of the text uh, some of the aces, uh, some of those really key themes. So hopefully we get the big picture, and hopefully I can point out um, some of the, the, the big themes for us. So let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, I pray as we come to your word now that I might speak to it faithfully that through your spirit we might be encouraged and emboldened and challenged to live for you with strength and conviction. Amen. What would it take for you to deny Christ? If you got dragged off a bus in northern Kenya and forced to kneel in the dust and had someone threaten your life, would you deny Christ in that moment? Uh, if someone threatened to take away your job, would you deny Christ? For some Christians around the world, uh, that is a, a genuine, realistic 
scenario. But I think the threat for us is often a little more subtle. Uh, it's a slow, dripping criticism of our culture that plays to our insecurities and doubts. And that threat becomes infinitely more powerful when it's combined with a little bit of seduction. Uh, when we feel our culture is offering a better way to live, uh, an easier way to live, a world where our sin is justified and even celebrated, where there's a promise of acceptance and happiness rather than the guilt and shame of sin. And once our values start to get undermined, then that shakes the whole foundation of where we stand and where we stand before God. And then we start to ask those bigger questions of, well, what do I really believe? Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, then you know that temptation. Uh, you've either experienced it for yourself or you've seen others go through that journey. And sometimes they've gone through that journey and, and there's a happy ending. Uh, you've seen how they've grown through that. But at other times, uh, we see that grief and despair of seeing someone go through that journey and simply being overwhelmed. And for some, you haven't ha actually had that experience to this point, but a time will come, most likely, when you will. And certainly a time is coming for Israel. If things have been tough for them up to this point, then things are going to get even tougher still. And so Daniel is being prepared by God uh, so that he can prepare Israel for that future. And unsurprisingly, as we've worked our way through the book of Daniel, uh, God prepares him through a vision. Uh, so let me pick up our passage in verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the banks of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleaming of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. We expect uh, visions and dreams uh, to get uh, pretty wild, uh, but this vision leaves Daniel completely overwhelmed. It's an intimidating sight. Uh, this man who's standing before uh, Daniel, in this moment, commands respect. And if you, you're struggling you know, with a bit of sort of uh, adequacy issues, this guy is not helping. Okay, you look at this guy and he is an imposing figure. And Daniel's reaction sort of captures how confronting this moment really is. You know, his face turns to a deathly pale and he feels like all the strength has been drained from his body. And at this point in the vision, Daniel isn't overwhelmed by the message, by the message, he's overwhelmed by this man. So verse 17, how can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. So often we want to posture ourselves before God as if we know best and we feel we can tell God how he should be doing things in the world. And we want to express our frustration because if we were in control, then we would do things so much better. Uh, this passage kind of puts that sort of posturing in perspective. You know, this man who's standing before Daniel is this angelic being. He's not actually God. He's just God's representative. And yet Daniel sees it for what he is. He is completely 
overwhelmed. He sees the greatness of this man, the greatness of God, and he sees his own smallness. And he's so overwhelmed in this moment that you know, this angelic being is telling him to you know, calm down and breathe. You know, do not be afraid. You who are highly esteemed, he said, peace, be strong now, be strong. So it's overwhelming, uh, but there's also this wonderful moment of compassion in this interaction. But it's also confronting because this man is talking about a reality that exists outside of our experience. And here we see two worlds colliding. So going back a few verses, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So some of these princes represent God, uh, others represent Satan, and there is this fight between these kingdoms as each represents these worldly kingdoms. And so Daniel uh, verse 20, Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So this passage reminds Daniel, and everyone else will read these words, including us, that our experience of life is not just about the physical world that we live in. And I think that can actually make us feel a bit awkward at times, can't it? You know, we don't mind talking about God and Jesus even being the Son of God, but I, I find it, it gets a little uncomfortable when we're talking about the idea of angels and demons and, and heavenly conflicts. But God wants Daniel to see that bigness in the moment. And actually, this is a theme right through the Bible. We saw it right back in the beginning in Genesis 1, uh, when Satan is represented as a, as a snake who comes to tempt. In the New Testament, we read how Jesus casts out demons. And Paul reminds us that we need to be prepared for a spiritual battle. So pick up the letter of Ephesians. He writes, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So from our perspective, uh, as we experience life each day, it is a struggle against flesh and blood. Yeah, we feel the temptation of the world, we feel the oppression of people around us. But the bigger picture is that Satan is behind it all, prompting and coaxing along this struggle. And thankfully, as we are in Christ, God does not leave us alone to deal with this struggle, uh, that we have his spirit. And so this is the reality of spiritual conflict in the heavenly realms. And it's all the way through the Bible, and it's often played out in the conflict and the politics of the time. Uh, but the real issue for Daniel and for Israel and for us isn't the rise and fall of kingdoms uh, or land or prosperity. Uh, the real issue is God's relationship with his people. And so Israel received the promised land as a symbol of God's faithfulness to his promises. And Israel remained in the land as a symbol of their faithfulness to God. And the exile is the inevitable outworking of sin. And the way out of the exile isn't going to be through uh, politics or diplomacy. It's going to be through recognising 
their sin before God. And we saw all of that in Daniel's prayer last week. So Daniel's prayer is really the prayer of a whole nation. Daniel recognises God's power and authority and justice. He recognises the sin of Israel. And finally, there's his repentance and his plea for mercy. And so verse 19 from last week, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. And if Israel embrace that prayer, then there will be reconciliation. Uh, But we know uh, that that never really happens. Uh, By the time uh, Daniel has this vision, the exiles are returning uh, to the territory of Israel. And in a few more years, God will direct them to rebuild the temple. But everything that is rebuilt is a very poor cousin of God's promise to Israel. It's never a return to the times of David. And so there is this longing for something better. And it's at this point we recognise that God is going to have to do something profoundly different in history. And as we know, that something is actually a someone. Uh, that he will send Jesus to deal with the problem of sin uh, by dying on the cross, paying the price for everything we have done. Uh, not just for the sins of Israel, but the sins of humanity. And he will establish a kingdom that will last forever. And so the words of Hosea, which were originally spoken to Israel, become the words for all people, where he says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my love who is not my loved one. So that is the future. Uh, But between uh, this point in history and Israel returning from the exile and that future hope, there's going to be enormous Suffering, and this is where we get to chapter eleven. Uh, so, in this uh, man, in this vision, uh, Daniel is being prepared for this future. As we read the book, we've had lots of visions, haven't we? So, in Daniel uh, chapter seven, we had all of this sort of language of beasts and and heads and horns. Uh, in chapter nine, in chapter eight, we had the ram and the goats. Uh, so, it's all very pictorial, all very graphic. Uh, by the time we get to chapter 11, it's actually incredibly specific. Uh, we're reading about very particular, specific campaigns and counter-campaigns and attempts to raise money to fund the wars and even a political marriage. And he's describing all of these events over a period that's going to be about 150 years. Uh, but let me see if I can capture it in one minute or less. Okay? We'll see how we go. I've got maps, I've got pictures, alright? So, okay. The uh, Macedonian Empire uh, was about that big. Uh, now, very significant culturally uh, and philosophically, uh, but not real big in the world, okay? Uh, then along comes Alexander the Great, uh, and he really was great and extremely efficient at expanding the empire. And so he gets to take all of this. So which is very impressive because he only lived for about, in terms of his, he died at 35. So his, you know, military career was about 20 years. Uh, I'm not even quite sure how you get enough people to take that much land in 20 years. Uh, But there you go. You know, this is why it's called Alexander the Great. 
because it's pretty impressive. Unfortunately, he dies. The kingdom gets split in four. And what's really significant for us uh, is a little bit later on, just moving on one more slide, it are these two northern and southern kingdoms. So the Seleucid uh, Empire to the north and the Ptolemaic Empire to the south. Uh, so this is the point of history uh, that we're starting to talk about. And then one more slide. Uh, you can see how those empires are shifting and moving through this whole period of time. So this is over 150 years. Okay, Nothing is happening particularly quickly except for Alexander the Great. Uh, but the bit we're talking about is that northern and southern empire. And you'll see, can't you, that, that the north and the south clash in the middle. And what's right in the middle of those two things? Israel. And so they literally become the meat in the sandwich. And so as this conflict happens around them, we meet one particular emperor who hates Israel in particular because Israel refused to embrace Greek culture. We met him a couple of weeks ago. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he had a particular contempt for the Israelite people. But by the time he becomes emperor, his empire is not quite as good as it used to be. Okay, so he's actually inherited the kingdom uh, when things are actually on the decline rather than the incline, but there's still this warfare between the north and the south. And we get just a hint that something's coming from the west, and the thing that's coming from the west is going to be the Roman Empire. It's going to sweep through and take it all. And so this is the conflict that is happening around them. And so he seeks to control Israel. And there's you know, two ways you can control people, most common. Uh, for some, uh, they'll seek to control with flattery. Uh, give the people what they want and they'll accept even an oppressor with open arms. Uh, for others, they use coercion. Uh, we will force people uh, to behave the way we want them to behave. And Israel will experience both. So verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. So by the time that we get to this period in history, there's a lot going on in the empires around them. There's also a lot going on internally for Israel. And Antiochus becomes the wedge that divides the nation. And so there are plenty of, of influential people in Israel who want to turn their back on God. They want to turn their back on Yahweh and they want to embrace Greek culture and that includes embracing the Greek gods. So there's a Jewish book, it's called the Book of Maccabee and this is how it describes what's going on. And many of the Jews were ready to forsake the law and to obey these officials. They defiled the land with their evil and their conduct forced all true Israelites to hide wherever they could. And then a little bit uh, later on in history, there's a historian by the name of Josephus. He's a Jewish historian. And he describes this period like this. He compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of their country and to keep their infants uncircumcised and to sacrifice swine's flesh upon the altar, against which all opposed themselves. And Sorry, against which they all opposed themselves. And the most approving amongst them were put to death. So in this picture, some will collaborate 
Uh, they'll want to be a progressive nation uh, that embraces Greek culture and brings Israel into the modern you know, se- you know, second century BC. And there's some interesting sort of parallels with our context, isn't there? You know, our society isn't quite as oppressive, but more and more we see churches and leaders who claim to represent Christ, but actually embrace and endorse the values and the sin of our culture. And for them, being progressive is seen as a good thing. And sticking to the same old truths of the Bible is seen as traditional and regressive. And the world will love them for it. If you ever watch a a media article about anything to do with Christians, almost always they find the most left-wing Christian they can possibly, or the most left-wing representative they can possibly find. And they will love them. So there are some in Israel who are going to turn their back on God, but there are also some who are going to fight and stand for faithfulness, who are committed to listening to God's word. But they are also going to face enormous persecution. So Daniel is warning them of their future. When you do this, you will suffer. Uh, Some will be able to run and hide, but many will die. And that's exactly what happened. But Daniel also sees a third group. And actually, I think this is almost the whole point of the book of Daniel. This third group who are really struggling in the middle. And he wants to encourage them to be faithful. So back in Daniel 11, some of the wise will stumble, so they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. Now, in amongst all of the messiness and the trials and the tribulations of this period of time, uh, there's this wonderful moment of grace and mercy by God that's directed towards the people who should have been faithful, who should have stood firm but didn't. You know, Jesus once said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, all sin that is undealt with leads to death. But at the same time, being ashamed and repenting is not the unforgivable sin. And Christ can work amongst us to restore us. So we might be ashamed in the moment of work. We've got the opportunity to stand up for Christ and we don't take it. Uh, It might happen at uni, it might happen in our family. So there's all of these temptations to deny and to walk away, or just to go along with the conversation. So it's not necessarily an active thing, but more of a passive thing. We just sort of go with the flow rather than standing up. And this is a good reminder that even in our unfaithfulness, uh, God is gracious, God is merciful, and God will forgive. Now, this passage is about shame and restoration in the context of persecution, and denying God. But it does fit within that bigger message of the Bible, doesn't it? That God hates sin, but God loves to forgive. Uh, We all sin uh, every day, but there are times in our life when we really, really stuff up. You know, the sort of sin where we feel there is no coming back. We've betrayed our commitment to Christ. We've betrayed the people we love the most. 
Now, sometimes it's a momentary lapse of reason, but sometimes it's not momentary. Uh, this sin feels like an irresistible force, and we justify it, and we protect it, and we even manipulate our circumstances so we can indulge in it. And then comes the, the guilt and the self-loathing, but soon enough that gives way to the irresistible force of temptation, and the cycle goes round again. I think most of us would, can have some sense of what that feels like. Uh, for some, it might be as, as big as something like an affair. Uh, it might be controlling abusive behaviour of someone else. It might be pornography or gambling or alcohol or some other sort of drug dependence. Uh, sin is never good, but God in his mercy can use sin, does use sin, for our good. And we, we see that in these words of Daniel. He can use our sin to help us understand grace, to paraphrase the words of Jesus. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. But those who are forgiven little, love little. God can use our sin to teach us that we are lovable, that we are precious, that God loves us, even at our worst. And as we are forgiven, it can help us to be more gracious and forgiving of others. Because we know what it's like to do the wrong thing. We know what it's like to sin and to disappoint and to hurt. And thankfully, we also know that Christ has dealt with all of that sin on the cross. And as we recognise his lordship, as we repent, as we turn away from it, uh, we can be confident of forgiveness. So Antiochus is coming. This is the future for Israel. And you can see why the, the, the events of Daniel become so significant. You know, it's, it's written down so that we know those events. But it's also written to prepare Israel. And the book of Daniel tells us what's going to happen. And he wants to say, this is what faithfulness looks like. When you are suffering then look to Daniel, look to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as your example. So when Antiochus sets up the Greek gods in the temple and demands that you bow down to it, then be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and refuse. When the law of the land says you can't pray to the Lord of the universe, then you need to honour God like Daniel. Uh, not with violence, but with steadfastness and faithfulness. Uh, tragically, we know that in the time of Antiochus, it did end in violence, and it's what's known as the Maccabean Revolution. And that revolution succeeded uh, in taking back the temple, but it never succeeded in dealing with the root problem of Israel's sin. You know, Israel are going to be confronted by an existential crisis, where they'll be asking themselves, who are we and who do we want to be? Uh, do we want to be like the rest of the known world with their Greek gods and their Greek culture? Or are we so convinced of God's love and God's goodness and the rightness of his law uh, that we are even willing to suffer and die? And really, as Christians, uh, those questions aren't quite as in your face each day, but they're still the same questions for us. Are we going to embrace the beliefs and values of our culture? Or are we so convinced by God's love that we will embrace his offer of forgiveness and reconciliation 
and we will see the goodness of obedience. And certainly that's why I pray for us, uh, that we might be inspired by Daniel's response uh, rather than the temptation of the world. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, uh, as we read this part of history, it feels a very long way from us, uh, but we can see how some experiences are common uh, to all people who seek to honour you. And so, Lord, uh, whether we face persecution or whether we are tempted by our world, uh, we pray that by your grace uh, you might save us and that you might hold on to us and that we might serve you faithfully. Amen.